Ahoy, and welcome into another mind-expanding episode of Not Allowed to Die, your podcast about mental health, where I, Dan Makler, social worker and life enthusiast, answer your questions about mental health. Alongside me, as always, is Mariska, the three-tooth Patterdale Terrier. And Mariska really wants me to point out that we have a, you know, we're we're doing this in part to draw attention to Paws for Patrick. I'm excited for those of you just listening, you can't see that I got a new poster for Paws for Patrick. It's up over my shoulder. And so we're excited about big things happening there. Mariska wants me to also thank all of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast, who have followed, who have shared with a friend, because her paws are feeling dynamite today. It is early March, and it is very, very cold. And yet, Mariska is still doing well. You'll barely hear her licking in the background. And Mariska is also in a really great mood because she loves it when we have a guest. She's not super friendly to young people particularly, but she likes she likes um, people who I've known for a long time. And this guest is someone I've known for at least 15 years. And it's Dana Lewinsky, who is the co-founder of Family Recovery Center and an expert in dialectic behavioral therapy and someone who has really taught me a lot about that area of mental health. So delighted to have you on the show. And Dana, do you mind starting off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey to become a therapist who knows a lot about DBT? Absolutely. Well, Dan, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm very excited to be a part of this. I've been admiring your work, especially, um, you know, just for years and years, obviously, we've known each other. So, and all of the work with Paws for Patrick is really exciting. So I'm very uh, honored to be a part of it. Um, so my road to becoming a therapist, uh, I feel like there's a lot of variables there, but um, you know, I I grew up, uh, you know, sub suburban Chicago. I had a really great um, uh, kind of family life. I was really um, I was really grateful and blessed to have such a good childhood. And alongside that, I saw a lot of my friends struggling and struggling with a lot of you know really difficult stuff from uh, divorces, from losing siblings, um, just some really tough stuff that. You know, it really kind of early on made me realize that life is hard and, and life really isn't fair. And a lot of people are dealt cards that they don't have control over. Um, and so that really made me think, you know, I want I want to be able to help. I want to be able to give back. I want to be able to help those people that don't did, weren't dealt those cards that, you know, that they really kind of started off um, with a difficult footing and, and a lot of trauma. So. Um, I also am, I, I always joke, I, or well, I should say I'm a recovering perfectionist. So, um, you know, I grew up, I, I was a perfectionist by nature. Um, I wanted, you know, I did well in school. I wanted to really kind of excel in my career. And I learned a lot, you know, through my own uh, therapy, my own journey that, you know, you can't, it, perfectionism is nothing. So that was a component too of wanting to kind of help others that, you know, that might struggle with perfectionism. And then also uh, I really love numbers and I love outcomes and I love uh, showing that what you do in this field um, you know, that there's objective measures to what you do in this field and, and that it can really, um, you can show that it works. So I kind of coupled all that together and I found a program at University of Chicago, which is its social service administration. Um, and it was able, I was able to do the clinical training of a therapist, but then I also, um, you know, had this policy analysis and program evaluation component to my training as well. So I merged the two and that's when, you know, we, um, we founded Family Recovery Centers and we got into DBT. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about why DBT is, you know, and when I was going through grad school, 
and we learned about treating people with things. We only actually, I don't know if DSM five has personality disorders anymore, but you know, we used to talk about personality disorders like narcissism and antisocial and borderline. And you used to kind of be told if you have a client with these issues, just buckle up and good luck, but you're not going to really be able to help them because cognitive behavioral therapy or a lot of the psychodynamic things, they, they just weren't terribly effective. And then dialectic behavioral therapy kind of came out of the scene and it seemed to be just a lot more successful in working with these people. So again, what drew you in particular to it, what DBT? Like, where did you first learn about it? And then what kind of drew you to that? And as opposed to these other methods? Yeah, um, you know, so so early on, I was working in private practice, and along with my um, my business partner Ryan Bright, and we were we were seeing we were seeing a lot of adolescents who we were kind of just struggling. They we were you know, working with them in sessions, and then they would go back into their environment and they weren't, we weren't seeing a lot of change. Like we were kind of hitting our heads against the wall of like, there's just not change because there's not change in that whole system. Um, and so we started doing some research on different types of like modalities and treatments that actually would, would really get into the whole system change. And we found DBT. And I think the, you know, when you say like with personality, obviously DBT was first um, created by Marshall Linehan for personality disorders and for borderline personality disorder. Um, and because it, it adds a component of validation and acceptance. And I think a lot of times, like you said, when you're learning about personality disorders, it's like, okay, well, buckle up. These are, you know, these are tough. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot, it's hard to make change. And it's really because these people have felt like, um, you know, they're not, they're not heard or they're not accepted. And so Linehan, when she was creating DBT added, it's a CBT based model, but it's, it adds this whole idea of acceptance and validation and being able to, you know, dialectics is meaning that there's two polar opposite things that can coexist. So the idea that we can accept where we are in the moment and also be willing to make change. And so we started doing a lot of research and a lot of training. And, and with DBT, when you really immerse yourself in the training of it, you do your own work. So you're, you're learning, you know, you're doing DBT in your own life too. And you really realize that DBT is, because of how concrete and structured it is, it's beneficial for so many different people, you know, from like across the board of anyone struggling with mental health, anyone just struggling, like just in life in general. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing we find so often we start a process that's, oh, this is really healthy for people with this condition. And then we realize, well, it's healthy for everybody. Yes. What, for me, one of the key components when I hear about and think about DBT is this idea of mindfulness. And yet lately now people have, it's almost been oversaturated. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, one of the things, and again, what I've learned from you about DBT is, and back to that idea of you can measure. And so this is when, when, when you're doing DBT treatment, it's not just a woo woo. So can you get a little bit more into like what mindfulness training looks like in DBT? Like, so if someone's going in there and they're getting that work, you know, instead of just saying, oh, just look at a picture of a stream and feel good feels, right. um, like, what are, what are they going to be getting with that? Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's why that's one um, major thing I think that I love about DBT is it is so structured. You know, there is there are different components. I think a lot of people think of DBT as just the skills, right? The there's five skills for adolescents um, specifically because that's that's more where I focus. But um, you know, it's it's not just the skills. So you're learning mindfulness is really the backbone of the therapy. So you're learning this idea that you know that you can you're you're able to be aware of your thoughts. So we're not trying to control them. We're not trying to focus on them just floating down, you know, the stream or floating on a cloud, but you're really trying 
just to be able to be aware of where your thoughts are and what they are and bring yourself back and have a little bit of control over bringing yourself back to the current moment um, and trying to be living in the present moment. But with those five skills, um, alongside that, it's also generalizing those skills. So it's, you know, it's phone coaching, which I think is a huge component and an important component of the treatment is, you know, you're learning the skills didactically, like you're learning them, you know, as um, we're teaching them to you. Um, but then you're also able to call in and have someone available as maybe you're walking into school and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm really anxious. I'm feeling really nervous to walk in the building. I don't think I can do it. Then you've got someone on the other end of the phone that can say, okay, so what skills can we use? Where can we kind of remind you of what you've been working on? Or, you know, it's 3 a.m. and I'm, my thoughts are racing. How do we use mindfulness then to really bring ourselves back so we can fall asleep, so we can get a good night's sleep? So um, I think that phone coaching and really generalizing those skills to your own life is so um, is just so key to this this whole DBT even being successful. Are there any populations, and I, I can't think of any, that you would say, oh, no, this population maybe should maybe start with something else or any population that you think, you know, no, I wouldn't recommend DBT for this. Or do you feel like DBT is a good, can be a good starting place for anybody with any sort of mental health condition? Yeah, I really think it, you know, I, I do research shows that it's not as effective with psychosis um, mm -hmm. because they're just, you know, cognitively, you have to be able to be at the point where you can grasp the skills um, and that you're in the reality, you know, you're in reality to be able to um, to grasp the skills. So I think that's the only, but other than that, I think it's really, you know, it's a good basis for a lot of, um, a lot of conditions, a lot of things that people are struggling with. And I think I found, and in my experience in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, because of things like DBT, there is this different framing when people talk about having, it's reduced the stigma overall of having mental health conditions because there isn't any DBT really, I, from my, what I'm seeing in the culture is it helps people to feel like no one is so broken that they yes. cannot be helped and supported. Whereas again, earlier there was a level of judgment even in the mental health community about certain kinds of disorders. And instead saying, I, I literally have teenagers will say, I have some borderline traits. And instead of thinking of that as just being a terrible insult to now say, no, I can understand this about myself. I can sit with these strong feelings and they don't have to forever dominate me. On the program, we, we've on this podcast, we've talked before about um, partial hospitalization programs, mm. and they tend to be about three weeks. And they're great because you learn a lot of skills, but you know, it's just like with working out. If I sent someone to a boot camp for three weeks and they might get in, it would be a good start. Mm -hmm. But about the getting in good shape and staying in good shape sometimes takes a little longer and it takes kind of more reinforcement of it's not just learning the skills, but it's reinforcing the skills over time. In the program that you and Rihanna built, uh, people are generally in your evening program for longer. And I mm -hmm. think, do you think that's necessary and benefit or is it, I, I kind of find that the people who do that, they have more long-term integration of the skills into their lives. So is that something that you were, as were thinking about as you were building your program that you wanted it to have sort of a longer focus? Yes, absolutely. It's one of the key components of our um, treatment that I think is different than, you know, majority of um, programs because we really, you know, for that reason, right? And my background in outcomes, you you see the longer and, and there is that kind of sweet spot, right? If you're in, in treatment too long, then it does become 
kind of just mundane or you're kind of losing focus. And so you really, you know, you want to step down maybe to a skills group or individual therapy at that point. Um, but the longer that you're in, you're, that's that generalization of those skills. So maybe you learn them in a couple of weeks, you learn what the ideas are, but then you actually learn through the phone coaching and the longevity of the program, how to incorporate them into your actual life, into situations like you're struggling with, you know, if it's a weekend and okay, here's, an, here's a situation I've never dealt with before. Okay. Still have the support of the, of the treatment team to help me get through that. <clears throat> Another thing I love about your program is that it really, and it's really more for, for younger people, the people I'm working with who've gone to a family recovery center, but there's a big family component. Yes. And I think psychoeducation of the family and helping family members understand what's going on with someone from with depression, anxiety, OCD, any of these things, it can just be game changing as far as the kind of support that it's being given. So if someone has someone in their life who's getting DBT therapy, are there things that family members or friends or romantic partners can do to help support, you know, the, the progress and gains that people are making? What are the kinds of things that you're teaching family as they're going alongside this, this person who's, who's trying to grow. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that is such an important point is just the support that someone has going through DBT. And it really is, you know, when parents are coming into the program, they're learning the skills right along with their child. So they're, you know, they're learning how to incorporate it in their own lives too. And they're learning how to maybe, you know, a lot of the work is how to validate, how to, how to validate feelings, and then, but not necessarily the behaviors, right? So a lot of in DBT, we talk about maladaptive behaviors. So whether that's self-injury, substance use, um, disordered eating, but those behaviors are coming from underlying emotions. And so if we can, as parents, as you know, support systems, really validate, like it's in, and kind of hold that space for it's really tough to feel so anxious. It's really tough to feel so sad and it's still not okay to, you know, to whatever the behavior to self injure. Um, and so how do we figure out like, how do we accept and validate and also support them in making different decisions and different behaviors? Um, and also it's, it's looking at the whole system, right? So it's really diving into what their role, what the support system's role is within that. So you know, a lot of DBT is interpersonal effectiveness. How are we communicating? How are we, you know, communicating our needs to our parents? How are the parents communicating needs back? And, you know, how are we having those discussions? So there, there is open communication. And so we know how everyone, um, you know, is feeling and also able to talk through difficult situations. Um, but, but a lot of like distress tolerance, emotion regulation, parents are actually doing and, you know, support system in general. So whoever it is, um, they're doing that work too, so that they can say, you know, DBT really is cool because the therapist is kind of walking alongside you. And then we say that along with the support people too, is you're walking alongside them. So you're learning too how to incorporate in your life so you can be healthy and you can kind of, you know, if they're, they're struggling with really intense emotions, we might say that you're going to stay on the ground while they go on that roller coaster. So they know they can lean on you when they get off the roller coaster. Mm -hmm. And I know, good, you, what, where you and I really differ is you are a numbers person who can do the tracking of the data. <laughs> I, my hat is off to anybody who could do that. But do you find, is that helpful when dealing with parents or other people who are skeptical of mm. therapy generally? It, has that been a, like, a strength where you can say to them, here, I can show you how these outcomes work. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think the coolest thing is to say, you know, we we can say with certainty that 100% of the kids that have graduated our program have had at least one parent um, actively involved in treatment. So, and then we have to obviously identify what actively involved means, right? Like participating, being on site, doing the work, maybe using the phone coaching themselves. Um, but when we can show numbers, you know, when we can objectively show those kinds of numbers, um, I think it, you know, it, it just helps again, everybody's brains work in different ways. Right. So a lot of, you know, there are a lot of parents that say, okay, I want to show me the numbers, show me that, show me that this is objectively working. Um, and I do think that that's at least a tool to help them understand why this is beneficial. Is there, are there misconceptions that you get from anybody about DBT or even whether it's older clinicians who went through before DBT became something, or is it mm -hmm. just people who are skeptical of therapy generally? Like, so what, what kind of pushback are you, or education are you having to give to people when they're like, oh, I know all about this. It's, it's X, Y, Z. And they're, they're kind of off base. Yeah. Um, I think the mis misconceptions I would say are probably that it's hard and complicated, that there's so much to it, that there's, you know, all these different pieces. It's so long. Um, but then when we really educate them on the process and, you know, that it's really skills-based, um, I think that that helps. I also think there's this misconception that it's, um, you know, obviously, like we talked about, it was first designed for borderline personality disorder. And so people that maybe are just struggling with day-to-day -day stuff are thinking, oh, this is, it's too much for me. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot of education around actually these, you know, again, these, these skills can generalize to anyone um, and can be beneficial for anyone. Now, we were talking before we uh, jumped out of the podcast that you got you, the, the demand is there. You guys are expanding yeah. in your programs. Are you finding when you're looking to hire clinicians that most more of the younger clinicians, it, it sounds like it's kind of part of grad school for younger clinicians to a good, ex to a large extent. Are you finding that most of the younger clinicians are trained in DPT as they're coming through school? Yeah, it's very different. I always used to kind of cringe when I would ask, like, do you have DBT experience? And uh, they'd, no, no, I don't know much about it. Um, and now it's, you know, oh, yes, I've definitely, you know, I know the skills. I know how to, I can teach a, you know, I can teach a skills group. Um, so there's definitely more of a focus, I would say, um, on at least the DBT skills. I think there's still some work to do on, on kind of the treatment, like in whole. Yeah. So for people who are interested in finding though, like individual therapists who have this skill, that should be something they, they could probably Google like therapist, their zip code with DBT. Is there, are there other good places where you would encourage people to go and look for if they're, if they're interested in saying, yeah, this does sound something that's interesting to me, something that's grounded and concrete, but then also is going to help me kind of tolerate my strong feelings. Where should they go to look to find clinicians that might be able to work with them and mm -hmm. with DBT? There's a lot of DBT training out there. So, um, you know, we, we in, at Family Recovery Centers um, really focus on Marshall Linehan's um, group. So it's Behavioral Tech. And I think the website is behavioraltech.org. And you can actually, she has a directory of individual clinicians and also, um, you know, teams that provide treatment. Because typically, if you're doing the standard DBT, you are going to be in a skills group along with individual therapy. Um, and so you're going to be doing, you know, the, the didactic skills, but then you're also doing the individual work to generalize, to do your diary cards, to really take a look at, you know, your intensity of emotions and, and, you know, how you're feeling, urges to engage in behaviors, all of that good stuff. And as you said, like that might be just to, to develop, the, to learn the initial skills might just be a few weeks, maybe. What is there a general 
average, like does Linehan suggest an average length of amount of sessions or things like that for people to learn the skills? Or is it just highly variable depending on the circumstance? It's really variable depending on, you know, the, the situation and the level of care that you're in, but it is longer. Um, tr you know, uh, skills groups can range anywhere from, you know, 16 weeks to 24 weeks because you are working on that generalizing with an individual clinician as well. Um, mm -hmm. But really, it's, you know, it's about learning the skills, but then it's okay, so let's how do we learn those skills to then manage the underlying emotions. And then there's this whole trauma component as well, um, that if there is trauma, which we are learning, there's, a, you know, a lot of people have trauma, right, to some degree or another. Um, and so how does that then play in? And I think at least in our IOP setting, um, the skills give you a really concrete base to be able to tolerate the trauma work without mm -hmm. engaging in maladaptive behaviors. I find that what I love about the idea of just, again, the group work that I hear, and again, I hear back from a lot of uh, people who are in your program, but just that, again, it's sometimes you might have a day where you're not, have nothing that you really want to talk about, but then hearing other people start to process some of how they're applying the skills and what how it's going into their life can help you internalize, oh yeah, that also rings a bell for me. Is that yeah. to you, does that have some of the benefit of what you're seeing in the group dynamic in the IOP? And again, I say IOP is intensive outpatient program. So your program is usually four nights a week. And then there's a, a skills group on a, for a different skills group one night. So is that right. usually the format so, that you guys are using? Yeah. So it's four nights a week. The skills group, the weekly skills group is a different level of care. So you usually step from the four nights, um, maybe down to three nights, down to two, and then into the skills group. Um, but yes, the group, you know, the group component is so cool. I think, you know, being able to see one big component of DBT is willingness and commitment. So you work right from, you know, pre-treatment in DBT to with that commitment. So we're working to logistically make it, you know, make it um, an option, especially with families if they have, you know, other siblings or they, they work full time, they have, you know, their um, single, single parent families. We really work with them. How do we break down those barriers to make it work and to be willing and committed to the treatment? So that's kind of your first step. But then when you're in the group and you might not be, you know, a lot of teenagers aren't like, yay, let's go sit somewhere for four nights a week and, <laughs> you know, kind of talk about my feelings. I think it's a lot. So, you know, when they come in and, the, and they're new, it's, it's nice to see some of the kids that maybe have been there a little bit longer and say, you know what, this was really hard at first or I didn't want to be here, um, but it's really actually changing a lot of things in my life. It's helping my parents communicate better. It's, you know, they're changing how they react to me and their emotions. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of benefit and the parent groups, you know, parents, I think sometimes are like, okay, here's my child, um, you know, get to work. And we're like, no, no, we're all going to be doing this work. And so for them to be able to have the support of other parents or, you know, they're, they don't know how necessarily to set boundaries or, you know, do that, like, you know, different parenting techniques, not get in the power struggle. They see other parents that have gone through it and they can really relate. Like they've seen, they see them on the other side of it too, that it can get better. It can get easier if I kind of dig in and do the work. Mm -hmm. How about for, if you were taught, if, if there was an older clinician who was saying, is it going to be worth it to me to spend, because you might, are there summer programs, things like that, where uh, people can get sort of a crash course on Linehan and the work that she does or, and it, because again, for me, the, the bits and pieces that I've picked up, I found are really beneficial to incorporating into the other mm -hmm. frameworks that I've always been using. 
But, you know, again, I'm not doing that full, more structured DBT. So what about for clinicians wanting to get more education about it uh, and just how they could incorporate more DBT into their practice? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at Linehan's website, there are so many opportunities, I think, just for even if it's like a, like you said, crash course in the skills, you know, to really kind of deep dive into what, how do you break, um, you know, break down the different modules and the different skills and the, you know, learn that so that you can incorporate some of those into your own practice. Um, you know, even I, I would really say that that's kind of my main where I always direct people um, because they do have, you know, they're doing a lot of research on um, DBT in schools, you know, a curriculum for getting the skills out there in the school setting, um, you know, working with PE, prolonged exposure, DBT and trauma. Um, so there's a lot of different um, areas that you can kind of focus on, too, depending on what your practice is. So I would say behavioraltech.org is a good place to start. What is the next step for, you know, DBT? You think, again, do you think it's going to be get more integrated into just our daily life? Do you think it's kind of already at this, like just like CBT over time, like people just, have you seen, like, have you noticed little things, whether it's in media or movies about mental health, where you're like, oh, that's a DBT skill that's like slipping into the regular vernacular or yes. are you, do you thinking it's getting just more everywhere? <laughs> It totally is. I mean, I think the idea that it's actually generalizing into the schools too, I think is like the first kind of big component there that it is kind of generalizing across um, the spectrum. But there's also, and I'm not a huge um, superhero movie <laughs> fan, but I know my, my family, my kids are, um, but I think it, I want to say it was Hulk, but they, they completely talked about DBT and they brought up, um, there's like scenes where they're talking about DBT and mindfulness and all the, and the skills. So I thought that was kind of cool too. And I think that was, uh, I might be totally misspeaking on which movie it was, but it was one superhero it sound, movie. I mean, it sounds like a perfect fit for a person who's <laughs> yeah. trying to control emotions and things like that. But exactly. like the, Hulk, the Hulk is definitely someone yeah. who could benefit from being able to accept and like, What do you do with your anger, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are there any other messages, whether it's about DBT or anything, that you just want to communicate to people who are, you know, here listening to a mental health podcast where they're trying to learn a little bit more about different perspectives? So any any messages you want to share out to the people who are listening? I think the biggest thing is just kind of destigmatizing treatment, right? Like, um, just like, I mean, I know a lot, of this is kind of common sense, but like we go to the doctor when we're not feeling well and we don't think twice about it, right? If we're not, you know, if we're struggling with anxiety, depression, like reach out to whether it's your school social worker, whether it's, you know, EAP through work, whatever it is, and just, you know, start the process of, of talking to someone and I think a lot of people that are kind of, you know, hesitant to do that, once they even make that initial kind of have that initial conversation, they feel comfortable and they understand that it's really not, you know, it's, there's, there's, it's not this big, you know, crazy thing. It's more of just like opening up and being able to kind of talk through difficult things. I think it, um, you know, it would help a lot of people. So I guess be open to the idea of, of therapy and of treatment um, and, and give it a shot if it's, you know, something that maybe um, you haven't been willing to do. Yeah, and I think that's one of the issues that often the, the students that I'm sending over to your program, it's they've waited. I wish they could have would have gone sooner. Because, yeah. if they, you know, again, all of these things are easier to treat if we start treating them before they're at a crisis point. So if someone like what would you say to someone who might be kind of on the fence of, if they think maybe I am someone who should be considering an IOP? So what, what, what kinds of things would help a person know that they like they might be the target audience to benefit from something like a more intensive program? And how, mm -hmm. how would they start to figure that out? 
Yeah. I mean, I think the, the first step really with IOP is that you've already, you typically you're working with an individual therapist. So I think talking to your therapist and, and maybe individual therapy just doesn't feel like it's enough or feel like it's, you know, you're, you're kind of going once a week and it's great and it's helpful. And then the rest of the week, you just feel like you're, you know, struggling or falling apart. Um, you know, it, that you, you need more of that structured, um, focus on mental health. I think that's kind of, I would say, start with your, your therapist or your school social worker, even if, you know, if you're not in, in therapy, just kind of talking to someone. Um, but I think the key there is like, if you're feeling like most, you know, most days you're, it's difficult to manage emotions or it's difficult to, um, you know, kind of to even feel focused on your thoughts, then I would, I think it's worth a conversation with someone you trust. And for a lot of programs, and you, I know yours is included, you start and you do an intake interview at the begin. And if you're not appropriate for the program, they're not going to try to get you in to a program where Absolutely. you're going to be this total outlier yep. who's very different from everybody else there. If they think, no, you really just need a therapist and we can give you some other referrals to people who might. And I know that's how programs in our area, whether it's Compass or Rogers, they would all do the yes. same thing where you start out with that. If Again, starting with your own therapist, but then going for that intake interview and what, what kind of things do people, what are you guys looking for in that intake interview just to try to tell whether a person's appropriate for the program or not? Yeah. Um, so, and I think, you know, we do a full assessment. So we ask a variety of questions about, you know, history. Have you been in treatment before? Um, symptoms? What are you struggling with? How often the intensity of it? Um, you know, what does your day to day look like? Everything from, you know, what, who do you live with? Uh, what is your support system? Um, just a wide range of getting an idea of, you know, really where you're at and what help you need. And then I think all, a lot, most programs in our area do a really excellent job of assessing and saying, okay, maybe this is the right program. Or if it's not the right program, let us help you and, you know, even hold your hand to get to where you need to be. It's not just, here's a paper with three referrals. You know, it's like, let's actually help you get to that transition because we know it can be hard just even walking in our doors. So we don't want to make, you know, if we're connecting you somewhere else, we don't want it to be a barrier to getting to where you need to be because it's another phone call or it's another, you know, another person. So um, I think a lot, most programs in our area do a really great job of that too. And that's where, you know, there were so many terrible things that came out of the pandemic, but one of the nice things is the increased ability for people to do telehealth. Mm -hmm. And we are, you know, just north of Chicago, we've got a lot of opportunities, but for people who are around the country who are in more rural areas, whatnot, now using, you know, the website, I'll put a link to um, the one handed things and uh, DB, finding DBT, because if you're listening and you're out there and you're not near a program that's easy, you can find someone, a skilled clinician who can work with you virtually. And that's really exciting because there's just, I, I know a lot of programs are having wait lists and things like that. So mm -hmm. it's just hard because there's more demand than there is supply. Do you feel that is kind of a frustration that you want to be able to do more for more people in more places? Absolutely. And I, and I do agree that I think that, you know, um, the silver lining of the pandemic was this whole virtual treatment. And um, I think it's really great to be able to have access to that. And then, you know, that that therapist is going to be able to identify too. okay, maybe we need, like, we need to look at a program that is in person, but then you've mm -hmm. got that connection and the support to help you get there. It's not just like, oh, I've got a Google treatment, like, I, you know, I've got mm -hmm. someone that actually knows what um, what treatments are available, and they can help you get there. So um, it is difficult. The the demand is, I you know, it's it's high, and people are struggling. So I think we were talking right before we got on that you know we're opening a new site, and we're really trying to get into communities too, where 
um, you know, there's not a lot of services because it's just so difficult to be a kid these days to be, I mean, you know, just, there's so many, um, so many difficulties out there that I, yeah, I want to make sure that there's treatment available. Well, if people want to learn more about family recovery centers, where should they go to learn more about your program? So our website's probably the best place. It's uh, familyrecoverycenters.com. Um, and I think that's a great place to start. It gives all the info on, um, you know, our program, kind of breaking it down, what it looks like, and then um, information on doing the, the, it's a complimentary assessment too. So, you know, you don't even have, there's no kind of commitment at that point. It's really just seeing if, you know, what program is best for you. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with Mariska and I a little bit more and about DBT and how, again, it's it's not radically a whole new thing in therapy. It's it's building on a lot of other things, just doing it in maybe a more systematic way and a structured way that's that's helpful. And it's just, it's helped so many people. So I really appreciate your time and coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's fun to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun to reconnect. Well, for anybody who's listening, if you have questions for Mariska or me, you can email us at daniel.magler at live.com. And until we speak again, do whatever it takes to get you through this world. And remember, you are just not allowed to die.